Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined, as always, by my three trusty co-hosts, Mr. Brendan Flaherty. How you doing, Brendan? Outstanding, Jerry. How are you? Excellent. Mr. Mike Long, how about you, Mike? Doing well, Jerry. Thanks, and uh, welcome back. You had a nice break at the end of the year, and it's uh, good to have you back. Oh, thanks, Mike. It was a good vacation. Too short, but I'll take it. And last but not least, Mr. Adam Shear. How you doing, Adam? Great, Jerry. It's you know it's party time here, virtual school. <laughs> loving it. Uh, but I'm great. Loving yeah. it. Good, good, excellent, excellent. Uh, well, we got a packed episode today, guys. So I just want to dive right into it. Uh, we got some contribution deadlines. We are going to have a debate on illegal versus unethical. But before we get into all of that, uh, let's start off with these FAFSA changes that got announced, Adam. I know you were uh, doing a bunch of research into them. Could you kind of give us a rundown of uh, the changes that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, you got it. Uh, so the FAFSA form, FAFSA standing for Free Application for Federal Student Aid, is going to capture information about the student, about the family, and ultimately come up with the amount of federal aid uh, that's available or the financial need of the family. And in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, uh, we had our lawmakers make some substantive changes to FAFSA, uh, what it's about, how it's going to account for the family situation uh, both in terms of their income and assets, uh, but also the number of children that are in, in college at a given time. And these changes are going to be effective on the 2023 to 2024 FAFSA form, uh, for the most part. So really what we're looking at here is it's not something that, that parents uh, are going to see until 2022 uh, when they have access to the new form on uh, October 1st, 2022. But there's also a little caveat that some of these changes could come into play sooner rather than later. So uh, we just thought that it was important to take a look at some of the, the more prominent changes. And right off the top, uh, supposedly, there is a simplification. That was the whole spirit of this, is to make this process easier for parents, um, more understandable, give them access to more information about how this stuff is calculated and what to expect, at least in terms of a floor for federal aid. Um, there, there's going to be some differences in the way that the number of children are calculated uh, in attendance, which is going to directly impact that. I won't go into, into great detail, um, but this has led to a new calculation that I think both the practitioners out there, the parents... Of, of children approaching college attendance uh, and our CFP candidates should keep an eye on in the next few years. Uh, so traditionally, the EFC was the calculation that was on that form, expected family contribution. And uh, they've reworked that, and I've still yet to, to see the mechanics of it. Uh, and it's now going to be called the SAI, the S-A-I. So we have a new acronym, a Student Aid Index. And uh, that's going to come with a, with a, a quick reference table to give people just based on AGI uh, and some some other variables uh, an idea of what 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 the aid could look like so that's that's a significant change there uh, income protection allowance uh, traditionally 
a portion of the parents' income, the students' income was was protected, meaning that it wasn't accounted for when calculating aid. And that is increasing across the board, that, that protection uh, amount. So that's also going to affect uh, the potential aid. A big change is the change to countable income. Uh, in the past, even though uh, a grandparent owned 529, for example, was not considered an asset for calculation of that family contribution, when the distribution occurred, it was considered income in the year of distribution for the student. And that is no longer. So that's going to have real impact. Oh. What we Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. They, traditionally, we said, you know, if grandparent, grandma, grandpa want to chip in, let's wait till junior and senior year uh, to make right. sure that that income is not going to blow up the, the financial aid potential. Um, so that's that's a pretty significant change. That's there. huge, right? Uh, yeah. So it will be uh, property of the child no matter what, or uh, are they specific about that? It's it's going to be um, excluded. It's not going to be reported. Ex- oh, yeah. So yeah, grandparents' distribution from those accounts, um, it's just considered cash support or money paid on the student's behalf, um, and they're they're not going to include that as an income item. Wow. Uh, the rest will be there, but that really frees up uh, the, the grandparents and the uncles and other family members that own accounts uh, with the student as the beneficiary. They now have some flexibility to come up with a strategy for distribution that doesn't involve just punting it till junior and senior year of undergrad. Um, so that's a pretty big change. Uh, there were some changes also to, to federal Pell Grants uh, just in terms of how they're calculated, they raised the the available pool by a whopping $150. Um, and also divorced or separated parents. There's there's a lot of confusion. In fact, if you look at the, the rules on this, determining who fills out the FAFSA and, and whose income is considered when you have a, a separated parent situation, divorced parent situation. Um, so the, the big change here is that the person filing the FAFSA is going to be the parent that provides more financial support to the student, uh, not the parent with whom the student yeah, How is that resides. quantified? Is that is? See, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it's in the forms. Yeah. Um, so, so if people like us are unsure about this, you know, certified financial professor. Well, it's new, uh, right? It's yeah. it's new. Yeah, so. but like, how how can <laughs> <laughs> it's just doesn't doesn't seem much too much simpler to me if that was the goal of uh you know the whole process. Yeah. So it sounds like there's some other things they could have addressed before uh <laughs> before they printed it. I agree. And and what makes I'm sorry, go ahead Mike. Uh, I, is that only in the context of divorce because in divorce living separately my understanding was only the custodial parent that it was the custodial parent's information only. So is this a change? Is is this context just in divorce or legal separation, or is it married couples? Or does it may not say in 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 what you've researched so far? Um, well, I know with so with if I think in terms of of custodial versus non custodial, this is solely for filing. This is who who's responsible for actually filling out the darn thing and and sending it in, and that's where the substantive change came from. Um, at least from what I'm reading so far in okay. terms of, of of counting of income and how that's considered, there weren't changes to that 
Um, so that would that would continue for the divorced parent. But again, it's it's brand new. I mean, I've I started reading about this less than a week ago. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we still have some time to to learn more about it. Uh, it, it just creates some really quirky issues because um, they said, you know, the, the family size is a consideration here and that uh, the, the rules of dis- dependency, uh, the way that the IRS sees it, is something that is, is considered when determining family size, right? Uh, but the rules of dependency uh, involve residency. Like, that's a requirement of it. And and I just feel like there's there's some tang- potential for just a tangled mess here in terms of like all right who who files it, and then who's a dependent and where does this get you know so I think I think some of those basics need to be looked at in in light of of these new rules, um, but apparently it's uh, I'm sure divorced couples will be happy to they'll be happy to sit down and work all this out right oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's all in, in the effort to get people to come together and. Uh, and, and right. be collaborative, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's, I mean, not the not the most most exciting stuff out there, but certainly something that I know come college time, a lot of people are are having to face. And um, what I would say is just just stay tuned. I mean, I think what we're keeping an eye out for here is which of these changes go, is going to go into effect prior to that that twenty uh, twenty two uh, start point. Um, and also, it's going to be more time of just it, just sticking the you know just getting the the, the facts in in front of of each of us to understand better how how it works. And so, do you do you expect that this will be beneficial? You know, how do you how do you think that this benefits the average family that's that's sending their kids to school? Um, I think that if it actually is simpler, it, it's just from like a a uh, like a. a a qualitative perspective. I mean, I think the stress of this, you know, it's not as stressful of a situation. Um, but in terms of, of the actual calculation, it seems to me that it's not going to really, uh, at least for the way I've read this so far, in terms of, of available financial aid, there are some elements that are going to gonna yield like a higher student aid index number that's built into this but they've also offset that with the way in which uh children are are going to be accounted for which is going to move it in the opposite direction so i i mean i very early on i'd say in terms of available aid i don't think that it really moves the mark there i think for people that are are qualified for pell grants oh go ahead Uh, so so do do you expect that there's going to be a a big difference between what the efc would have come up with and what the sai would come up with i honestly don't know enough about it now to say because Uh the efc was it, it accounted for a lot it caught a lot within its net i mean it still had a ton of moving parts parents income parents assets student income student assets there's different inclusion percentages there's different protected numbers um I'm interested to see how that looks with this aid index. Um, so it, it'll be more research. So I can't safely say. But, you know, at least with the EFC, I think that, you know, with with, with my experience, the EFC kind of landed probably mm-hmm. around where it should have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I you, you wonder, like, is there really a need to to, to, to change the process? You know, I, I obviously making it simple is is great, but, you know. And I, I do, I do feel the pain because there are clients who have to fill this thing out, and they despise the fact that they have to fill it out. 
they know they're not getting any financial aid, but they need to do it anyway. And, and it's, it's, you know, a, a lather, rinse, repeat conversation that I have to have with them every single year. You know, I actually can't <laughs> wait for their kids to graduate more than them. Um, but, you know, it would, so will there be a change with that? Does, do we expect that every family will still I have to fill out the FAFSA form? I haven't with that, so I'm assuming it's that's straightforward as, as it was. That wasn't one of the big changes that were pointed out um, that I saw. Yeah. Um, okay. I think one of the things that will be easier for people with, with high high financial need is that uh, they are lowering the percentage of uh, applications that need to be verified for people that are going to be possibly getting a Pell Grant. So for those with, with really high need from the financial side, the way it used to work is about, I think, 38 percent 40 percent of those applications would then need to go through another verification step and a part of it was for accuracy a part of it was just truing up and and for for best practices uh but what they found was that people that went through that extra step the ultimate aid that was distributed and the number of people that followed through um they w it wasn't as high as those that were able to just proceed without that verification step so they're lowering that i think to uh 18 percent um, and I guess you could argue with that. Well, maybe maybe it did its part because it 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 filtered out some things that were in error, and and I think that's valid. But but they're doing that as well. So I think for for families that have really high need, um, the the odds that you're going to be in that pool for extra verification and more steps is it's going to be a smaller pool. And there's they supposedly have done more work around that, just really filtering for that, making sure that they have the right cases. And that's at the that's at the federal level. Yep. So, I think always institutions have been able to ask for additional information, right, to, pertaining to their own institutional help. I, I would I would think that FAFSA will still be kind of a, a universal form, and rather than each institution only doing their own, wouldn't you think just for simplicity? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I mean it's it's time tested, right? And it's it's already a part of their process too. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's built into that. I, I, and these changes, I think they 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 will have some impact. I, I think we'll we'll have to wait and see exactly what that'll be. But I mean, I don't I don't see any big systems changes in the way that that's that's processed at the college level. But but a part of this just strikes me as of the the big changes to the the you know the one page or the 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 ten forty on a note card, and. Um, Really, all that happened was it all got bumped out to other forms. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah, the 1040 technically is shorter, but right. the same stuff is there because you need it there. So I think uh, it seems uh, people that want to make this seem like it's a bit really big deal uh, are, are pointing to the paper form. And they're saying, well, the paper form has been reduced from 108 questions to 36. Uh, but the truth is very few people use the paper form. And the paper form has to have all the questions in there. And the, the AI is, is doing a lot of the filtering to limit the questions. So in terms of like real simplification, um, uh, we'll see. I think the parents are still going to be aggravated come, come this time of yeah, year. Yeah, and I think the end result will be the same. I, I, I think the end result will be the same too, where those in great need, uh, there will be financial aid, but the middle is going to get <laughs> squeezed uh, as always. And the wealthy were never getting financial aid. Uh, and I think that's the same result. They're just kind of reshuffling the deck is what it looks like to me. But, but it, does, it seem, does it seem like they're, they're putting more of the onus on cash flow and income as opposed to asset levels? 
Um, I think I think it it might uh, I might actually be the opposite. Um, because the current one has a little more emphasis on cash flow. Um, than than wealth, so it, it might actually be the, the the flip that they're putting a little more weight onto to assets. Um. Than, than some of the cash flow and, and income. Mm-hmm. But, are, they, but again, are the actual percentages changing? You know, the old kind of baseline, uh, is that going up, you mean? The amount that they'll consider from 6 not to the actual, 10 or whatever? So not the, you know, the parents, uh, you know, the, having a 5.64%. Like that, that's, to my knowledge, none of that's changing. Uh, they're still going to be counted with the same inclusion rate into okay. the calculation, but what is changing is that that barrier. They're increasing that threshold, the hurdle in terms of the income that comes in for both students and for the parents. So there's actually a higher hurdle to clear before it's countable, before it's in that pool where we're going to now apply that factor. Wow, yeah, you're the most knowledgeable CFP I know on this subject, <laughs> and if and, and if your conclusion is it's a mess. <laughs> it, it must really be a mess and uh i think you mentioned it seek yeah, seek professional help for this maybe in more ways than other. yeah, yeah right. uh, myself yeah. included do you have i wanted to ask uh but do you have uh your go-to uh websites that you find to be really reliable and accurate and is there anything that could be shared along those lines for People, this is yeah. impacting right now. I like uh, I like savingforcollege.com. I think that's a good one. I used to use that site all the time when I was a five twenty nine rep for uh, oh, Fidelity. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that was a great one. Yeah, and they go they go surprisingly deep into some of the stuff, like the divorce situation. Um, buried yeah. in there somewhere, there's a, a really nice list of yeah. of the the check marks you have to you go through to figure out who's getting what. I mean, it really. It's almost like one of those decision trees that you'll see at the IRS. Um, here's mm-hmm. how you process this. So I found that one to be useful. I also think that um, that that there is, uh, you know, some of some of the more tax centered stuff is is helpful, uh, just for fundamentals on this. You know, what is a dependent? There's some good good graphics on determining what that looks like, and there is some overlap there. But yeah, I've, I would say saving for college is is has been my go-to saving for college.com you said yeah okay do they have any sections on how to pay for rowing scholarships <laughs> is that is that a new question is that one Just of the asking new questions yeah <laughs> Dude. yeah that's i want to see how the cfp boy frames that question oh man so tying tying it all off with the bow here what would you say are just kind of like the key points for our test takers as far as the cfp exam goes you know any any yeah big stuff can you just tie it off for us absolutely um stay the course for for now <laughs> um <laughs> however for those of you that have just started out and maybe have a two-year timeline until you're sitting uh keep an eye on that efc because we know that that is is a highly testable item for education planning and if this is changing its name and possibly changing how it's calculated uh, you know is is the student aid index going forward uh that's going to be something to watch and also, I think that the really big change is that change to countable income when the time comes, uh, because we're 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 pretty certain that that's that's a a, a testable angle uh, with grandparents owning accounts and when you distribute to 
to maintain the, the eligibility for student aid. So just those two factors. Keep an eye on the EFC acronym. It's going to change to SAI and, uh, and also the changes to income that's countable. Uh, all right, guys. So our next topic is a pretty important one uh, for CFPs. And also, I just feel for life. This is a, this is a pretty good topic. Um, it's also one, surprisingly, that uh, a lot of students get confused on at least uh, kind of finding the line between them. And that's illegal versus unethical and the nuances that differentiate that. Um, We did want to kind of focus on the news that broke last week of, uh, you know, insider trading among Congress and how it was unethical, but not necessarily illegal. But recent news events i feel have uh, kind of superseded that brendan and i uh got into a little bit of a debate before the episode started but right now what's going on in the market with gamestop i feel uh also exemplifies this and is a great kind of talking point for us to get into with this um but before we get into that let's just kind of define illegal versus unethical you know what what is what is that difference and you know what does it mean to you uh mike you want to start us off well, it would be very simplistic for me, just, you know, against the law or just not in good form, not in good character, um, but very clearly against the law, illegal. And something can be unethical without being illegal, but something that's illegal is always also going to be unethical, I imagine. Yeah, assuming the laws are, are uh, just, yes, exactly. Um there can always be the case in, uh, you know, other situations where, you know, sometimes a law itself can be unethical and that's where things get really confusing. What about for you, Brendan? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that it's quite easy to understand things that are legal or illegal. Um, unethical um, really comes down to, you know, more of a value system. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's kind of a it, it's it's a grayer definition. Um where you have some people will look at something and say, well, I think that's fine. And other people would look at it and say, I think that that's completely out of, out of line. Um, and, and so I think ethics really comes down to the values of the, of the system and also the values of the person or the people within the system. Depending or not whether something's uh, unethical comes down to what your personal ethics are, really. Um, now, as CFPs, we kind of have a, a shared uh, kind of ethical foundation. Um, you know, for a lot of CFPs, something being unethical is oftentimes just as bad as being illegal. Um, what What do you think, Adam? You know, how does that kind of play in? Well, yeah, as as CFP professionals, I think um, any any other professional, there, there's a, there's a reason that uh, the code of ethics is is put out there. It's to say that by by holding this designation and by being a professional in this space, you're, you're going to uphold the following um, in your your day to day and uh, and just just as a citizen, you know, and someone someone that's involved in the profession. So, I know that that's spelled out first and foremost in the code and standards. And it's one of the, the the fundamental foundational things. It's one of the four E's that we always talk about is ethics. Yep. And so it's you know to Adam's point, it's it's a very endearing, important thing to the CFP board. I think that's a good point with the code and standards and the you know, placing the client's interest uh, above one's own, uh, you know, helps sort out, I think, some of that unethical stuff that, you know, is not illegal, but placing the client's interests uh, just has to be paramount. Now, what happens when the client's interests themselves are unethical? Well, it's in the code. That's, That's in the um, code. 
Well, I mean, you're not encumbered yeah. by that, you obviously. You to follow client yeah. instructions that they have to be reasonable, number one, and uh, lawful. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So if there. you're if you're yeah. if your client says like, "Hey, uh, I want you to lie on my tax form," that's obviously out the window. We can't do that. I feel where our students get confused is the more nuanced questions. Where let's say your client comes in and goes, "Hey, I want you to lie to my wife and not tell her about uh, this account," and then students are now all of a sudden weighing the facts like, "Well, lying to the wife would be unethical." But this is my clients, and I have to do what the client wants, and they get stuck in this rock in a hard place, uh, you know, intellectual argument in their minds. How do, how would you recommend students kind of sort that that sort of situation out? That's a great question, um, I, and I look at it as well: are not both of them the client, the the uh, right. both spouses, and that's a conflict of interest uh, w- with the client. Uh, being that spouse that is not to be told. Um, that's how I would break it down. I, I've actually had an issue like this occur in real life and practice where we had a husband and a wife that were clients and um, there was a little bit of an age gap between them, but you know, not terribly significant. Uh, he was about early 70s, late 60s. She was early to mid 50s. Uh, both made good money, really had no you know, debt, had a nice house. And we were doing a financial plan and you know, we surfaced that there was $70,000 of credit card debt. And I said, well, that's insane. We shouldn't have that amount of debt and it's at terrible interest rates. So I think what we should do is arrange for you to leverage the house, get a home equity line of credit, which at that time had much more favorable rates. Uh, you could still deduct the interest and, and we'll go ahead and pay off uh, the credit card and, and, and retire that debt. Perfect, great idea. Uh, we arranged it, the closing comes up and she shows up at the closing. And I said, well, where's your husband? And he said, well, why does he have to be here? Well, he's on the deed, so he's gonna sign the, the documents. Oh, well, we can't do it then. <laughs> well, what do you mean we can't do it? Well, he doesn't know about the credit card debt. <laughs> so so here's, here's a guy who has a $70,000 unsecured debt accruing at 22% per year and has no idea <laughs> about it, right? And, and so what do you do there? And, and so I had to say to her, like, listen, he's he's my client, too. So I'll give you I'll give you a few weeks. But if you don't tell him, I have to let him know. And I'm sure at that point you're going to fire me. <laughs> uh, but I, I have to let him know that this is out there, you know. And so ultimately, you know, it, it, of course, there was there's all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds. Of, she was embarrassed about it. She didn't, you know, and, and, and everything worked out fine. They ended up doing exactly what we recommended that they do anyway. But it was definitely like one of those, oh, my God, what do I do here? Right. And, and so um, I, I could tell you that my mouth was as dry as the dirt in the Sahara when I told her that I had to tell her husband at some point. And uh, but it all worked out fine. But it was it was definitely a weird situation to be put and in. That I feel for the test is kind of like the uh, the rule of thumb. You know, if both of them are your clients, you have a duty to both of them. I think where people have the... That's right, separately. Yes, separately. I think where people have the feel-bad moment is, Brennan, if in that same situation, the wife was your only client, she, you know, contracted you independently from her husband as just, you know, she wanted a financial advisor to give her some secondary advice. Maybe they have another advisor as their joint advisor. You know, in that situation, she, the husband isn't your client in that regard. So it may feel bad, but do you still have to then tell the husband in that regard? Because that would actually be. No, no. I mean, my, my, 
no, my my yeah, my, my, I don't owe really anything to him at that point. I mean, that right. would be my interpretation. It, it, uh, but again, it's still you know clearly this is in your best interest to get this done, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, I have no, I have no real right to notify him of anything of her financial. And, condition. And if you were to tell him, it would actually then be unethical for you to tell him in that regard because you would be violating your client's trust. It's just same exact situation, completely different end result, all coming down to who is actually the client who has actually contracted you. And I think that at, the, at its root is really what confuses so many students when they see these questions on the exam. And then document, yeah. document, document, uh, excuse me, it doesn't know about this. One second. Would you mind if we yeah. recorded this? You yeah. know, just so I can. <laughs> yeah, say that one more time slowly. Yeah, yeah. slowly into my lapel. <laughs> yeah, and have compliance on speed dial. Uh, I think are the two, the two best practices. Yeah. So for test taking world, that's probably the best advice we can give is, you know, figure out who the client is. That is who you owe your ethical responsibility to. Uh, let's take this to kind of the real world. Uh, yeah. oh, so you wanted to uh, say something, out, uh, Brennan? Well, I would say that one one other area I think that that, that students and also people that that I, I've worked with that that struggle with a little bit uh, are conflicts and mm. and whether or not um, you know they're conflicted or not conflicted. Um, and and I, I think really what what people have to understand the definition is it's not whether or not you as the practitioner think it's a conflict. You may say, well, of course I'm not conflicted here. It's, it's, I'm doing this because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, it's whether or not the client could perceive it mm -hmm. as a conflict. And so the example that I typically give is, let's say I have a, an, an accountant that I refer you know, all my clients to because they do excellent work and I know they're going to be taken care of and their taxes are going to be done you know, professionally and, and uh, uh, efficiently. Um, and you know, because I refer so much business to, to this accounting firm, they actually do my personal tax returns for free. Um, but I was referring clients to them even when they were paying me to, or when I was paying for them to do my tax returns. Um, at that point, I would probably need to disclose that as, as non-direct compensation. Because even though in my heart, I know I'm not referring my clients to them because they're giving me a $500 or whatever it is uh, discount on my taxes. It's because uh, they do good work. If the client says, well, wait a minute, the only reason why you're referring me to this person is because they're doing your taxes for free. That's the conflict, right? It's it's the client could perceive it as a conflict and therefore it needs to be disclosed. Let them, let them decide whether or not it's a problem for them. Don't assume that it's not going to be and you'll keep yourself out of trouble. Good advice. Good advice. Uh, let's take it kind of to the real world. Um I do still want to talk about kind of the first example we wanted to talk about before we move on to the uh, <laughs> the bread and circus that is GameStop. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, uh, news kind of broke uh, a couple weeks ago about insider trading in Congress members. And basically the end result was, hey, this might be unethical, but it's not actually illegal for Congress to conduct insider trades based on, you know, classified security briefings. Uh, you know, if I'm a member of Congress and I get this classified briefing saying that, oh, there's a, you know, new plague coming <laughs> and I then go out and buy up all these, uh, you know, mass companies and disinfecting companies uh, before that news ever gets made public, 
that's actually completely legal and members of Congress can do that. The discussion surrounding that was is, you know, even though this is illegal or even though this is legal, is it ethical? How do you guys feel about that? My reaction is, why the hell isn't it illegal? Oh, wait, because yeah. you make the laws about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. make the rules. Yeah. It's like Congress voting for a pay yeah. cut. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just security. I mean, it's it's really any any non-public uh, testimony um, it really presents this opportunity for there to be this, this potential, you know, trading on inside information or non-public information. Um, and, and again, most other people that would do it would be would be in trouble, you know, and and uh, rightfully so. Now, what I find funny is if I, I'm a member of Congress and I do this and I buy the shares and I make a bunch of money, totally fine, not illegal. But if I tell my brother-in-law that uh, they should buy this because you know something's happening, uh, my understanding is that then would actually become insider trading before my brother-in-law and then as a result i would uh also fall victim because with the insider trading rules it's not just the person who actually conducts the trade but also the person who shares the information is also equally at fault i I mean i I would think that that um you know certainly the the person that transacts the business is really the one that's doing the insider trading i mean you know, I don't know if it would necessarily stretch all the way back to the person who shared the information. I mean, I think it might be a problem for them from a from a business standpoint, but whether or not it would actually turn into an SEC issue for them, um, I think they'd be there's more of a blurred line there for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's when when we talk about insider trading, it's the person transacting the business, potentially their their broker, who if if you know if as an advisor, if you think. Um, or you know that someone is making these trades based on insider information, you can also get in trouble for that. Um, and, and so, you know, it's it's just something, I mean, it should just, it, it, it's, it's clearly uh, something that should not be allowed. Uh, it's clearly something uh, people should stay away from um, because there's legitimate penalties for this and it's, they're not pleasant. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also, I think, why a lot of people were really annoyed with the uh, the news breaking about the Congress people doing insider trading, because it, it really feels a lot like, uh, you know, rules for thee, but not for me type situation, where if you're not a member of Congress, you could go to jail for this. You know, you could get uh, Martha Stewarted. <laughs> and if you are a member of Congress, you get off scot-free. Uh, one of it's one of the things I say to my my undergraduate students all the time. I, Martha actually went to jail for lying to the FBI. She true. went to jail for obstruction, yes. not necessarily. True, it was, true, true. It was regarding insider trading. <laughs> it was her broker that went to jail for insider trading. Yeah, they so, could. They could. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the the, the twenty nine year old that pushed the button for her got you know a, a stiff penalty, and she went to jail for obstruction. But it was a beautiful jail cell she created. Well, and it, it earned her lots of street cred and. You know, she hobnobbed yeah. with rappers, yeah. and I mean, good for you, Listen, Martha. Yeah. Live the, your life. The, the Snoop Dogg Martha Stewart friendship is one of the most beautiful examples of friendship. In I the love world, it. And I, I'm going to stick by I it. I love it. <laughs> it. It really is. Yep. Um, so, I didn't know they were buds. So that, oh yeah, they. Oh yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> there's a there's a great it, video of uh, Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg making mashed potatoes together. I, I highly recommend it. Just go to, go to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> um. So 
that would... and that's not even a euphemism for anything. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Snoop Dogg was just really hungry. I don't know why. Yeah, that's Sharon Buds yep. would be my guess, but yeah. <laughs> um, now we have another situation brewing in the news with illegal versus unethical uh, that Brendan and I, I feel, are actually at opposite sides of the fence here. And that's uh, the news surrounding GameStop and the just absolutely insane movements that the stock has seen over the past week due to kind of a coordinated effort via Reddit. So how, how do we feel about this situation, guys? It, it's it's not. Well, as far as we know right now, it's not illegal, but is it unethical? So basically what happened uh, on Reddit, the website. There's a, uh, a community on Reddit called Wall Street Bets, which is like a, a meme community, just very tongue in cheek investors, just making fun of themselves, making fun of Wall Street, but also sharing investment ideas amongst each other. Basically, this trend snowballed on there that, uh, you know, GameStop was an undervalued company because even though this is a dying business on the verge of bankruptcy, it was overshorted. And what that means is there are more shares shorted in the company than actually existed for the company. I believe, Brendan, you mentioned before the show is about 160% of existing shares were shorted. Yeah, 160% of the float were short. Yep. And so this community realized like, hey, this is a... Uh, you know, something that we can exploit, we can cause what's called a short squeeze by basically forcing the stock price up, which then forces all the short sellers to cover their position, which then causes a snowballing effect, which drives the price up even further. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, we saw GameStop go from about uh, about $20 on January 12th to yesterday it closed at $347. So in about the course of about a week it was it turned into a 10 bagger driven mostly by this online community all pulling together and driving the price up to cause this snowball effect that would just spiral the price up and up and up and we've seen trading halted numerous times and actually now the latest news that just broke is a bunch of brokerage firms have actually started refusing to even sell GameStop shares. So how how do we how do we feel about this? Refusing to allow people to to have opening buy orders. Yes, you, I'm you sorry. Can sell yes. your existing yes. positions, but you can't you can't have opening buys. Correct. Yeah. Good clarification, Brendan. That's right. You you can always close out a position. They're they're refusing people to open new positions. So you know, I, I think it, it it's it's not necessarily uh, an argument in in legality versus ethics. Uh, I, I think it surrounds more about you know the overall well being and health of markets to to have these things occur. Um, because again, as I'm looking at the at the stock today, um, it's currently halted for probably the eighth time. It's now you know two hours into trading, um, and the high for the day is four hundred and eighty three dollars. The low for the day is one hundred and twelve twenty five um, on twenty seven million shares traded. So it's it, it this this is this is hurting people uh, on both sides. And I, I the analogy I used yesterday with somebody was that it's like two people standing toe-to-toe -to -toe throwing absolute haymakers back and forth at one another and let's see who drops uh, and it's just 
the collateral damage that it causes, that is hard to determine right now. Yeah. Well, I would say where the uh, you know unethical debate comes into play is the majority of this community of uh, Wall Street bets, their their preferred brokerage firm was uh, was Robinhood. And now Robinhood right. was selling trade information to Citron. So Citron was one of Robinhood's largest uh, you know, uh, buyers of information. And Citron was the firm that was really famously short on GameStop. So does Robinhood have this conflict of interest where they're selling their clients' information to a company that is purposely taking the opposite position of all of these clients of Robinhood? You know, where do, where does the ethics come in into play in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that clearly there's going to need to be assessments done as to you know who who are the players in this, and, and why does the things like this occur, and whether or not um, it should be allowed to occur again. I mean, we saw it in in the financial crisis where there were you know well known uh, institutions that were actively shorting on their own balance sheets things they were encouraging their clients to go along in, mm-hmm. um, and and so it, it, again, it, it clearly it, it toes that line of of whether or not it's an ethical um, activity. Um, but but you know when we see when we see the anomaly, and it's not just GameStop. There's there, there's a number of stocks that are that are kind of dealing with this phenomenon right now. And the problem is, is yesterday, for example, we saw a couple of other stocks that started going higher, uh, and in in markedly so. And and so you have to start to question: Well, is this the next one that this group is targeting, or is it moving up because of something fundamental? Uh, or something technical, and so it, you you start losing faith in what you're seeing in the market. And one of the things you had to start checking as of yesterday is what the short interest in a stock was that was going up, um, and making sure that it was within you know a, a real uh, range of what you know would be ordinarily healthy for short interest. Um, and, and so you know, and again, we've got people today that traded GameStop, bought in it, you know, happily at 483, that are now looking at almost 300 dollars of loss per share. Mm. It's just it's not good. Well, it also comes down to like, can a hive mind be unethical? Because Wall Street Bets is a community of two million people. It's not one person, you know, wrangling them all and, uh, you know, telling them it's like, oh, everyone buy GameStop, everyone buy GameStop. It's two million separate people all having this echo chamber and all buying into it at the same time. You know, is is that unethical if they're not? It's it's like a thousand paper cuts argument. It's like if you uh, if you well, I mean, go go ahead, Brendan. You've got you've got. I mean, these people didn't arrive at this on their own. Right? I mean, I, I would assume that that you know a very high percentage of of uh, the people that are participating in these trades don't fully understand the market dynamics behind why it's moving in the directions that it's moving. You know, they just they're just oh yeah, hurt. they they don't they don't uh, understand it. Someone like. I, I, right. I someone someone started that. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time in that community, and it's it's not a, even just that they don't understand it; is that they take pride in their ignorance <laughs> that they don't understand it. Like, right. It, it, it's it's uh, it's scary. It's funny, but it's also very scary. <laughs> the the reaction that they have uh, to this sort of uh, you know situation, but it just you know going back to the illegal po- point of view. You know, can can you arrest a hive mind? No, it's like you can't arrest all two million people. Uh, it's like, are there some ringleaders promoting it? It's like, yeah, but even that is a very large number. You know, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of people who are promoting the GameStop 
uh, stock on uh, Wall Street bets. I think I saw a chart and it was uh, 46% of all posts on this forum of 2 million people were about GameStop. So you're looking you're looking at, uh, you know, just shy of a million people all talking about this one particular stock. You can't arrest a, a million people uh, for talking well, about So uh, there are 46 percent of unique posts or 46 percent of total posts. I, it, it could be people posting multiple times. Right. So that's also true. Yeah. So those those numbers are definitely yeah. very fuzzy. So, yes. But the point I'm just trying to get at is we're not talking about like a group of five people or six people or even 100 people. You know, there's thousands of people all talking about this and all, all promoting this stock. Yeah. And so I think it's a it's a greater argument as to as to whether or not, you know, it, it, it's something that, you know, the, the adults in the room should step in and prevent. Like, I, I, I'm I'm curious as to I mean, I'm all for free markets. Right. So free markets are, are, are certainly important. And and um, the people eventually the 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 market should should revert back to to, to price discovery um but you know given given the nature of this given the dislocation and fundamentals given the extraordinary moves up and down uh over the last you know, almost week now it's just surprising to me that the exchange uh or the sec has not stepped in to try and cool this off you know the the, the circuit breakers are tripping and the stock is, again it's halted again continues to halt um, but you know, if this was a, if this was an index, they, they'd shut trading down for, for the entire day. Like, let, let's, let's just, let's blow this out and, and let, let's let the cooler heads prevail. Um, and, and so I'm just, it's, it's kind of surprising to me that, 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 that hasn't occurred here. Um, well, you know, for, from my perspective, I feel it comes back to the whole, you know, rules for thee, but not for me scenario, because if the SEC were to quickly step in, I almost think you'd have riots because, you know, the SEC steps in and says, hey, it's not OK when retail investors do this. But when these hedge funds and these high frequency traders, you know, take this market information that they're buying from Robinhood and other brokerage fund, uh, firms and front running retail investors, it's totally fine. So I feel it's like, yes, you know, this scenario uh, might be unethical and some some new laws or rules might need to be put into effect. But let's not kid ourselves. This isn't really nothing new. The only new thing here is that it's retail investors calling the shots rather than the hedge funds and the and the institutional money on Wall Street. And it just feels like there's a bit of a double standard that it's this huge deal for for retail investors to do it. But when a hedge fund does it, you know, that's just business. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference is, is that the hedge fund comes in with all of the money on its own. It's not organizing others to go with it. Right. Whereas this is like an organization. Well, uh, to, and, and again, you're taking people along who don't necessarily understand what they're committing money to it, it's, um, or it, what levels they're committing it at. That's what I was trying to get back at before, though, is it's not organized like they take pride in their disorganization. There's no unified effort by like a small group of people to get all these people to do to, you know, take these actions. It's people. Post yet they're all trading GameStop. Well, yeah, because so coincidentally, they're all just trading the same stock. The way the way this happened is people were like. Uh, hey, I bought GameStop and it went up and it, it was, it's called uh, gains porn is what they refer to it, where when someone makes a lot of money on a trade, they post a screenshot of their account showing the, you know, the green percentage of how much it goes up. And that causes fear of missing out FOMO and snowballing. And when you have thousands and thousands of people doing it, 
you know, you get this massive snowball effect. It's not organized. It's it's an organization of the masses. You know, it's 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 mob well, I mean, theory. The, the, basically. the point of making the post is to is the point of making that post is to drive others' behaviors, right? To, the, to, to further exacerbate or manipulate your outcome. No, the point of the post is to get karma. So the way Reddit works is there's this. It's called karma, where when you make a post, every time someone likes your post, you get a point. That's what that's what drove uh, this community to start in the first place. Is people weren't trying to manipulate the markets. They're just looking for fake internet points, and that's really kind of the society, the you know, the culture that we've we've fallen into with social media and Twitter and Pinterest and uh, Instagram. Is you know, for a lot of people, fake internet points is is an important currency to them, and that's what they was driving them to make these posts. And as a side effect, they they stumbled backwards into market manipulation. You know, I find this just like a a fascinating historical example that I think we're going to be studying for years just to see behavioral finance and psychology of it and how fake internet points transformed into, you know, dollar signs. And those aren't redeemable for dollar yeah. signs, are they? Karma? <laughs> so actually Reddit has its own crypto called Dogecoin. So Reddit huh. does have a cryptocurrency. So <laughs> you, yes, you you technically could, I guess. I don't think there's a direct uh, you know, conversion ratio of karma to Dogecoin to dollars, but there is some tenuous relationship at best. <laughs> and it's not like they're, they're I mean, it, it's essentially a like. Isn't it? I mean, it's it, yeah. It, it's, it, that's what it's a like. <laughs> wow. The the difference is is but but the what makes Reddit different from something like Facebook is on your profile it shows you a running total of your likes. It's called your karma score. Okay. And for a lot of people who use it, that karma score is more important than the gains that they make on the on the market. You know, because they're these are people who are you know putting twenty forty dollars into the market, and you know maybe they make four dollars on a good trade. But, you know, if they post that and they get 500 likes, you know, that means more to them psychologically than wow. that $4 they made on the market. Oh, boy. Calling all CFPs. <laughs> SOS. I think feel even worse about all of this, honestly. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> crazy. I mean, like? I, this is why I find this whole situation so fascinating is I feel this is going to be something that we're going to be studying in finance, you know, textbooks years to come. Just it's it's crazy how this whole thing played out and i'm i'm just i'm making lots of popcorn and seeing what happens <laughs> i mean the, the the unfortunate thing is you're going to see there's going to be a lot more people hurt in this that actually benefit oh, long term yeah and for I, sure i think that it's it's you know there's gonna be a lot of like really small retail investors that really didn't fully understand the risk they were exposing them to uh, exposing themselves to and, and they're, they're just going to get blown away and, yeah. and it's that that's the problem and i and i'm totally fine if this causes new regulations in place but i'm not going to be okay if the new regulations are like all right reddit can't talk about the stock market anymore because that to me feels very disingenuous in that hey retail investors you guys can't do this but the hedge funds they can i feel if, if any new laws and regulations come into effect it needs to it needs to impact both parties equally. You can't just punish one party for this and let the other party get off scot free. Yeah, I mean, but you you do have like the hedge funds have like a prop desk that that understand the the, the fundamentals of the company relative to competitors, relative to the market, 
and they're making intelligent decisions on their trades, both well, you, long and they, short. They shorted 160 percent. How is that an intelligent decision? Not that, not one company. I mean, there's 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 uh, uh, other companies. I mean, it's not just one company that does that. Well, no, Citron so, Citron I, I came mean, out I, with a press release, and like they knew that they were shorting 160 percent of the float when they came out with the press press release saying GameStop was you know uh, overvalued and it should be much lower. And like that's what kills me is like. You're talking about coordinated efforts. How about these, you know, hedge funds that come out with these short calls and they make they call a huge press release and try and drive the stock down based on their findings uh, with this. Yeah, I don't think that that's like when Bill Ackman did it with with Herbalife. I, I yeah. don't think that that should be allowed either. Right. But that's 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 a totally different scenario. I mean, that's. That's where um, that that is uh, a coordinated effort by a small group of people like what you were saying about Reddit before. And but it's not a small group of people. I, again, I, I think you're, you're you're thinking that the hedge funds gang up together to, to coordinate like they'll, they'll stumble into these things because they have metrics that will identify things that are overvalued or undervalued. And so that's why, you know, crowds uh, trades get tra- crowded because, the you know, they're all analysts looking at the same public information, we would hope. Um, and, and therefore, they're going to come out with similar uh, quantitative uh, outcomes. Um, and, and so, yeah, sure, if, if one hedge fund identifies a company as being overvalued, chances are others will also identify it as being overvalued. Uh, and, and therefore, you may see multiple um, institutional investors short a position. Um, I mean, I, I don't, it's, it's certainly not one, I mean, not one company held every short position in GameStop. No, not, not at all. But still, the fact, what I'm trying to point out here is Citron took a massive short position in GameStop and then held a press release in the attempt to drive the stock of GameStop down. Like, I think it's absolutely absurd that we allow these hedge funds to have press releases and, basically present all these reasons encouraging people to short the stock and tell uh, or sell the stock if they own it in the effect in the efforts to drive it down how that is totally fine but we're now blaming i wouldn't say that that's totally fine i mean i i think that 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 also you know kind of borders in that gray area as to whether or not you know they, they walk a pretty careful line when they when they have those those conversations and i i agree i mean i, I don't think that you know they sensationalize these things and a lot of that happened actually with the coronavirus i was talking with uh, uh, somebody the other day about you know how bill ackman seemed to have done that at the very onset of the coronavirus um where he went on cnbc and had this like like breathless emotional uh interview and you know come to find out the next day he was actively shorting uh the, the indexes and again, now, again, they could be totally coincidental. I don't think that it took a rocket science in March when, when this stuff was kind of unfolding to say, well, this isn't going to be good for markets. Um, but I think it could be easy to draw the line. So, well, maybe his interview was, was to, to, you know, exacerbate the, the position that he had just taken. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? So you've been, you've been, you've got the most experience no, to see the most market I, outcomes. I, I don't. Um, th- this is actually one of those times that I'm glad I'm old. Uh, and I'm actually sitting here thinking about what sounds good for lunch. Uh, so, so, so yeah, that's where the that's where the institutional money is. I don't I don't want to go near it. I'm sorry. I no, I don't. Uh, Adam, Adam, you want to kind of round us off before we move on? Yeah. I, I again, I'm um I'm, I'm very much interested. I think like you, Jerry, in the behavioral piece of this and um. Yeah, I think it continues our the conversation we had a few months back about, you know, the the not so reliable advice on TikTok and 
Here's yeah. here's just another yeah. iteration of that. You have people making financial decisions on on information that they shouldn't, and and there's <laughs> there's a lot a lot to unpack. I think that's an, an interesting topic to explore some more. Um, For sure. But I think the fundamentals we, have to be where it's at. I mean, for the whole thing to operate, and and that's I'm just so amazed at the the just the groupthink aspect with the the Reddit people and, and attributing value to the the karma too. And I guess I'm I'm not not an active part of that, so I don't know what that looks like when you're when you have your profile and you know the thrill of people giving you right. karma. But um, yeah, uh, I I do think this is this is another you know, call for, for CFPs. <laughs> I think we should infil <laughs> infiltrate that thread. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing is actually Please stop. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no way, there's no way to like, uh, you know, vet these, but I'm shocked at the number of posts I see on there of just like, Hey, I'm a CFP. Hey, I'm a financial advisor. And it just like there, this is bad. in in two regards where, one, if you're not, you're impersonating, and that's just that's just bad. And two, if you are, what are you doing posting on there? Like yeah. I like I I lurk on Wall Street Bets, and I like I'll read through it, <laughs> but I have never posted on there because there is no way I'm going to touch that site with a ten foot pole and put my accreditation at risk for some for some in uh you know uh internet points. <laughs> so I'm happy to read through it, but when I see like. Hey, I'm a CFP X, Y, and Z. I'm like, man, you are insane if you are actually a CFP and you're making these posts on this website. Yeah, I, I would just if you, if you see stuff like that on on, you just remember Chris Hansen from To Catch a Predator. <laughs> yeah, uh, can you can you sit down? Can you sit down? <laughs> Take a seat. <laughs> yeah, not everything that you see on the internet is real. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good uh, place to wrap that topic up. We'll we'll co maybe come back to that in, the, in a future episode because I do find this absolutely fascinating, and I'm I'm really interested to see uh, where this all ends up. Uh, maybe we'll we'll talk next episode about uh, some new rules and regulations the SEC is putting in on internet advice. <laughs> um, I, it's it's going to be you know yeah I'm I'm curious to see what they do from an exchange level. That's that's really where I think this needs to kind of be dealt with this you know obviously we're in a, a, a bit of a new normal here and um they need to come up with some some guidelines for what's you know what's healthy what's not healthy all right guys we are going to finish up the episode with our question of the episode got a good one for us today uh, and it has to do with uh, contributions. Uh, even though it's January, uh, you still have until uh, tax filing deadline to make contributions to a lot of things like IRAs and other retirement plans. So just wanted to kind of test your knowledge here uh, since it's that time of year. Uh, so John, an employee of ABC Inc., is concerned because he has not received an annual addition to the ABC profit sharing plan for the past two years. John, who makes $100,000 per year, is age 40 and married. Which of the following can he do? Uh, or I'm sorry, which of the following is true? Uh, A, all defined contribution plans are subject to minimum annual funding rules. B, he cannot contribute to an IRA because he is an active participant in an employer plan. 
Three, he could make a deductible contribution of $6,000 to an IRA. Or D, he could make a combined deductible contribution of up to $12,000 by also contributing to a spousal IRA. What do you guys think? I would say that this is a classic, like, hard to determine the right answer CFP question. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm no, none of that. the answers that you see, or none of the choices that you see are what you were expecting to see. Right. The question itself seems very straightforward. And then you see the options. You're like, this is nothing of what I wanted to see in these options. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's let's run down them one by one here. What about A? All defined contribution plans are subject to minimum annual funding rules. False. How do you guys? False. Yep. And why, why is that false? Profit sharing plan is a defined contribution plan, but does not have annual mandatory contributions. Right. So I feel like this question is almost one of those ones where you don't even have to read the question itself. You just have to go through A, B, C, and D and see which ones are true and false. And you can really eliminate a lot of them that way. And you, it's more like you're finding the answer uh, through process of elimination than what anything else in the actual question. Uh, so what about B? He cannot contribute to an IRA because he is an active participant in employer plan. Want me to take it? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to start okay. calling on yeah. people. I feel like I no, feel like a uh, fifth, fifth grade teacher <laughs> calling on the back row. <laughs> I got my head in the head. In, I got my hoodie up. You, got you, you don't up? see me. You don't see me. <laughs> yeah. Adam's in the back of class eating chips, even though there's a no food in class rule. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about uh how do you feel about option b adam i would say that's a no-go as well um well the the op the opportunity you can always make a non-deductible contribution to an ira right um those phase outs right, yeah, are really uh centered on on whether it's deductible or not um also the active participant piece um yeah, I don't think that that really would come into play here. I'm I'm gonna go no on two, but I would I would I would look to Mike Long to just give me the uh, the verified on that. <laughs> Biff man here. Um, yeah, hey Biff man. Yeah, he actually would not be an active participant because there has not been an annual addition uh, to the account in 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 the current year. So we've got uh, for annual additions we have employee deferrals, we have employer contributions. And we have reallocated forfeitures. If none of that happens in a year in a profit sharing plan, uh, you know, where where there is not a 401k option, so there's no employee deferrals, that person's not an active participant. So, I mean, that's that's a great point, Adam. You mentioned it. It just says a flat contribution. It doesn't say deductible or non-deductible, just a flat contribution. So just on that alone, it's out. Because like you said, you could always make a contribution to the IRA. It just may not be deductible. And then, Mike, you, uh, I remember you telling us a great story about being an active participant because that's also key in this regard. He in the question, it says he didn't make a he didn't receive any participation in, contribution for the yeah. last two. Yeah, for the last two years. Now, what's funny about that is it's any dollar amount, right, Mike? I believe you were telling us a story about how one year you got uh, got screwed on yeah, this one. Yeah, the only, the only <laughs> in the profit-sharing plan, and it was just a pure traditional profit-sharing plan, um, it was just a, a minimal reallocation. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't remember the exact dollar amount, but it was not high. 
and peanuts. And for that year, uh, you know, it's marked <laughs> that you're a participant. Uh, so there was no way to deduct, you know, any type of IRA uh, contribution. Yeah. So, you know, they could have put like $12 in your account that marks you as active participant. And now you can't make a $6,000 contribution into an IRA because you got, you know, $12 in your, uh, <laughs> in your profit sharing plan. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember those, um, those reallocations and defined contribution plans. They count. Yep. But. Luckily for John, he did not get, you know, a peanuts contribution to his plan. So he still can contribute to an IRA, which I think is why we can uh, settle on C as the right answer. You know, he can make a deductible contribution of $6,000 to an IRA. You know, he's not an active participant, so he can contribute. And he's only making $100,000 per year. So that allows him to fall within the uh, the phase out amounts where he can make a deductible contribution to his IRA. Well, well actually, uh, as a non-active participant, income is irrelevant. The The income threshold is only if they're an active participant. True. Yes, I'm sure you're right. You are right. Which also brings us to why D is incorrect, where... He can make a combined deductible contribution up to $12,000 by also contributing to a spousal IRA. Yeah, I throw that one out immediately because it doesn't say he's married. I mean, how could we assume that? Yeah, that's exactly well, what I was going to say. Yep. Well, it does say he's married. It does? He's age 40 and, oh. it's, he's age 40 and married. married. Okay. Uh, okay, I missed that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, what, what it doesn't say is it doesn't say the employment uh, or participation status of his spouse. We don't know if she's. That's exactly what I was going to say. So, you know, for all we know, you know, his wife could have a job where she's an active participant, which means he wouldn't be able to make a spousal contribution on her behalf. So uh, I think we're all we're all settled on a C. He can make a deductible contribution of six thousand dollars to an IRA as the correct answer here. Yeah, that that would get my vote. Same here. Yep. So pretty straightforward. What what's some advice that you can give to our students if they come across a, a question like this, where you know there's kind of a couple things going on here, and you know the options aren't exactly what we're looking for when we're reading the question. Well, what I do is I try to search first for something I know is absolutely correct, or something that's absolutely incorrect, and that's the first cut on the answer choices that I try to make. Yeah. Definitely. That that would be my process with a question like this is I, I come to the correct answer through process of elimination and I just start, you know, crossing off answers as, you know, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. OK, this is the last one. This has got to be the answer then. And then, you know, just checking to make sure that. Lines yeah. Up. So like for this one, that's a good example with, you know, that he absolutely can make a six thousand dollar deductible contribution. The other one with the spousal contribution that. You know, that seems like it could be right. But because could, I know he, that his is absolutely correct, that's what would tip it for me. Exactly. Like D very well could be a correct answer. And if we knew a little bit more information, we would know one way or another. But that's the difference here. C is a definite correct answer, whereas D is a maybe correct answer, mm-hmm. which is why we would want to go with C in this regard. Yeah, that's good advice. Uh, Brett and Adam, any other advice you can give students in, in that regard? No, I just I always recommend you thoroughly read the question and thoroughly read the answers. I think, like 
the one these longer questions with the longer outcomes you start to make assumptions as to what it's actually saying and people especially once you get into test mode where you're you know you've, you've become a mercenary in these in these practice exams and you just you've seen all of these questions over and over and over again uh, small assumptions that you make lead to totally different outcomes and answers so mm-hmm. do yourself the favor and take the extra time to read the question and on a podcast have it open in front of you before you answer, I didn't have it open, so I'm trying to remember. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Miss the crap, point. He's, he's married. Oh, no. Don't. Yeah. Oh, man. I'd say also just one extra thing here. Um, the stu- students can't see this printed out in, in front of them, but uh, this is one of those those K-type or K-style questions, um, which CFP board's starting to move away from. But if you have those, one of the nice things – is that you find a couple true or false statements, you know, you either circle them or strike them out, and then you can you can use your test-taking strategies to just eliminate choices. Um, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So just strike them out, you know. One strike and you're out on the CFP exam, so that helps out too. I like those questions for practice. It makes you think through or review multiple elements in one yeah. in one question. Yeah, and uh, for those who don't know, the case style, uh, another way people refer to them as the Roman numeral questions, mm-hmm. um, you know, where it gives you four options and you have to choose which of the four options is correct. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap up the episode. Had some fun talks today. Uh, gl- happy to spend the afternoon with you guys, and uh, we'll see you all next month. Very well. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, take, take care, care. stay safe, yeah. everybody. Be well. See you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Awesome. Bye.